This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Can you guys put your hands together as we welcome Pastor Jim Shadler to the platform? Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jason. He is as close as the mention of his name. Wise people still seek him. Seekers have pursued him through the centuries, and religious people have pursued him. So go with me to John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here in John chapter 3, we have the only recorded account of a Pharisee coming to Christ in the Gospels. And there are only two Pharisees' testimonies that are shared via the New Testament. They are Nicodemus and Saul of Tarsus, who we are familiar with as Paul the Apostle. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a first century participant in a religious sect which numbered approximately 6,000 people during Jesus' ministry. They believed in God. They attended church or synagogue. They believed God's word. And they memorized and taught the scriptures. In fact, to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the first five books of Moses, the most sacred, called the Pentateuch, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They also prayed and fasted and tithed. And some of their theology was accurate. They believed in divine decree. They believed in moral accountability and immortality. They believed in the bodily resurrection and in angels. And they believed in future reward and punishment. But they also believed that the kingdom of God was attained by law-keeping and ritual observance. And because they never experienced a personal change of heart as God intended, they pretended to be holy. And that led to legalism and traditionalism. This is who Nicodemus was. Not only is he a Pharisee, he is a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which literally means council. It's the supreme court of Israel with 70 members and the high priest. And the court is made up of the wealthy and the scholars, the elite from prominent Jewish families, ex-high priests and, and, and individuals related to them. Nicodemus is respected. And I think it's remarkable that Nicodemus believed that Jesus had come from God. Because the rest of the Pharisees conclude that he came from hell and that he did what he did by the power of Satan. He didn't necessarily believe that Jesus was the Messiah or affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. He simply says, you must be a teacher come from God because of the signs that you do. But that is not enough 
Do you realize that in America today, 52%, according to a recent poll, of Americans believe that Jesus was a great teacher? No more. A third of evangelical Christians believe the same. And yet, Nicodemus agreed that there was no possible human explanation for Jesus' miracles. Thus, he recognized that the signs that Jesus did must have been done by the hand of God. Listen, here we have inherent in Scripture an objective first-person eyewitness testimony, not of a believer, of a seeker, to the authenticity of the miracles of Jesus, which become proof of his divine mission. You see, Nicodemus recognizes Christ's authority. He's polite, he's respectful, possibly even excited as he meets and interacts and compliments Jesus Christ. But remember, he's a professional religionist. He's a respected theologian. He's a justice in the Supreme Court of Israel. You could say he's at the top of his game. Jesus, on the other hand, has no letters to introduce him, no human pedigree. But Nicodemus does. And yet Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the compliment shared by Nicodemus, you're a rabbi sent from God. For Jesus in verse 3 answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What Jesus says here is that without being born again, you can't even see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. And it's interesting that chapter 2 concludes with many believing in Christ when they see the signs that he does. And yet it says, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew men. And he knew what was in man. He's omniscient, and he understands, and he knows Nicodemus. And further, tonight, he knows you, and he knows me. Now, to be born again is not a type or a flavor or a preference of Christian experience. How many times in my life, as I've shared with individuals, have they asked, are you one of those born-agains? But in fact, to say born-again Christians is really a redundancy. In order to be a Christian, you must be born again or born from above. If one has been born again, then they have become a Christian. In the New Testament, there is no other kind of Christian except a born-again Christian. So all of religion, all of it, combined at the highest level, produces zero in standing with God. All of it is useless. It's useless. To enter the kingdom, you have to be born from above. And between verses 3 and 8 in this text... Jesus says it five times. 
You've got to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. He repeats it. You have to be born of the Spirit. He says again, you have to be born again. And then a third time he says you need to be born of the Spirit. In case you missed it, you must be born again. You see, spiritual birth originates with the teaching of Jesus, not the apostles, not the church councils or creeds, not a church father, not a denomination. It originates with Jesus. He taught it, and he said, we must be. And it's confirmed emphatically by Peter, Paul, John, and James, all pillars of the New Testament church. So Jesus uses here a metaphor, that's a figure of speech, of a baby being born. And Nicodemus understood what Jesus was suggesting, and so he asked, can an old person enter a second time into their mother's womb? And so Jesus responds by contrasting natural birth with spiritual birth. Stay with me. Verse 5, Jesus answered and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, there are two births. There is a water birth. That's a natural birth. That's flesh producing flesh. And there is a spirit birth. That's supernatural. That is the Holy Spirit producing spirit. So there is an earthly birth and there is a heavenly birth. This is not two steps to salvation. Don't make the mistake. Don't assume that being born of water is a reference to water baptism. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Is it important? Yes. Water baptism is important. Is it meant here? Certainly not. Nicodemus, as a Jew, had already participated in numerous ceremonial washings, cleansings, and baptisms. But this is not what he understood Jesus to be saying or or speaking of. He took Jesus at his word. Water baptism is important, but it doesn't save you. It's a work, but it's not a saving work. And water baptism does not precede spiritual birth. It follows it. We have to get the order straight. So eternal life is not contingent upon water baptism. There's always a danger when you take Jesus' teaching, like a passage like this, and you try to merge together the instruction that he provides. When we do that, we see it through church history. It produces this concept of baptismal regeneration. People say, well, I was was born as an infant, and then I was born again through water baptism. And when you take that type of doctrine, the natural progression ultimately becomes infant baptism. We'll baptize our infants so they can be born again. And this is tragic error. If religious ceremonies could produce life, then Nicodemus was certainly qualified. Or Paul the apostle, above all, was qualified by his religious service. No, it's not good enough. It doesn't get you into the kingdom. You see, there's a natural birth, that's the water birth, and there's a spiritual birth to be born from above. Again, that which is born of flesh is flesh. This is the natural birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is the spiritual birth or to be birthed from above. 
So we too can take Jesus at his word. He is not hiding the truth from us in symbolic language. He says we must be born again, born from above. And to be a candidate, you need to be born of water. That means you need to be born of the flesh. What is the significance of that? Remember, Jesus is making a comparison, contrasting the natural birth, our physical birth, with spiritual birth. But at the same time, it's critical for us to recognize that you need to be a human being to be born again. Animals don't get to be born again. Angels don't get to be born again. This is for the human race whom Jesus died for. Hebrews 2.16 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And why did the offspring of Abraham need help? Why do we need help? Because we as human beings are born spiritually dead in sin. Remember, in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15. In Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. Listen, natural birth plus religion, performance, effort, works, all the accomplishments will not save us. Not even sincere religious ceremonies can save us. Look at these verses quickly with me. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. We can't earn eternal life. We don't deserve eternal life. Psalm 53, there's none righteous, no, not one. And Paul quotes it in Romans 3:10. Romans 3:20, Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But then he goes on in Galatians 2, 16, and he says, here's how we're justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? We already learned in chapter one, in him was life, and the life is the light of men that shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome. So to be born from above is similar to natural birth. Think about it. And do you realize that we have nothing to do with that? Nicodemus realized it. You could see, you could hear him. Reasoning, I did not and I cannot contribute to my natural birth. Exactly. That's true for you and me as well. I didn't plan my birth. I didn't participate. I did not accomplish it. And we cannot contribute to our spiritual birth. You can't do that. Nobody births themselves. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're coming with all of your religion and all of your accolades, all of your efforts... What more do I need? You need to start over. That's what Jesus said. You can't birth yourself physically nor spiritually. And superficial faith is insufficient. There's those that believe, well, he's a rabbi, he's the prophet, he's Elijah. It's insufficient. We must believe that he is God. He is God. You say, you're saying Jesus is God? I'm saying what the scripture says. Jesus is God. He was with God, and he was God. He is creator, ruler, judge, and Lord, the one we bow to. That's what the word teaches. So what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is there's nothing to add to your life to top it off and get you into the kingdom. 
Nicodemus probably assumed, look, I'm, a, I'm as high as I can go. What's my next step? And Jesus says, there is no next step. Your religion is meaningless. You might as well be an atheist. You're so alienated from God. All your works are dead works. They give no life. You have no spiritual life. You have no relationship to God. In order to have a relationship, you have to be born from above. Something has to happen to us that is a work from heaven. Jesus says you must be born again. So the point is, for those who pursue a Judeo-Christian ethic, don't count on Abraham. Don't depend on Moses. Don't look to the law. Don't even look to the temple. And I'm talking about the biblical temple and the biblical ceremonies of sacrifice. Don't look to any of them. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? You see, just as the wind is not under our control, we don't know its origination or its destination. We simply experience its effects. So it is with the spiritual life that Christ provides to those who trust him for their eternal life. So this spiritual birth is foundational to everything we do, and it is a complete work of Christ. It doesn't depend on other activities of the flesh or of human effort. It doesn't even need our participation. It simply needs our surrender. Now let me just, before Pastor Jason comes back, note the position I've heard throughout my life by many in churches. I've always been saved. I've always been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were pastors or missionaries or leaders. I've always been a believer. That's not biblical Christianity. You must be born again. You must have a crisis of faith in your life where you realize you are a sinner. You weren't always right with God. None of us were. None of us were. So what does it mean to be born again? It's not self-improvement or turning over a new leaf or trying harder or doing better. John 6.63 says, it's the spirit that gives life. Flesh profits nothing. In John 6, many people heard Jesus and they said, what must we do to do the works of God? What must we do? That's us. That's just tell me what to do. What must we do? So we can do the works of God. And Jesus says the work of God is this. Believe on him whom he sent. Believe in Jesus. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. Peter preaches. The, the, the hearers are convicted in their heart. And they say, men and brothers, what should we do? Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? But I like how Nicodemus puts it. It's most succinct. He asks, how can these things be, Pastor Jason? Come on. <laughs> How can these things be? That's the question. Nicodemus is wrestling with. It's the question that the world is longing to know. It's the question that the world is aching in its bones to understand. It's crying out for this savior. It's crying out for new 
birth. And Jesus is about to provide the answer to it all. Verse 10, are you ready? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? In other words, you're supposed to represent God to the world and yet you still don't figure it out? You still can't get it? You're supposed to represent the God of the universe and the stars and the cosmos and have all the secrets to existence and why life is the way it is and yet you don't know? You see, all the teachers and all the wise men and all the philosophers and all the sages and all the self-help coaches and gurus can't answer the question. They can't provide us with a single satisfactory answer. Neither can politicians, neither can the media or entertainment or those that broker power from on high. Only Jesus can answer the question because only Jesus brings eternal everlasting life. He says this in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. In other words, you've rejected what we've come to say and you've rejected what we've come to do. But verse 12, I have told you earthly things and you don't believe. So how is it that you can believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is essentially saying, if I spell it out for you in language that you can understand, and yet you still don't have a clue, how is it that you're going to understand the life of the heavens, the life of the kingdom? How is it that I can make sense of anything heavenly to you because you've essentially become an expert in missing the point and not getting it? But hear me out, before we're too hard on our good friend Nicodemus here, don't we too miss the point? Don't we too miss what Jesus is wanting us to know and understand? You see, for some of us here, that's exactly what's happening. God has been trying to get your attention for a while now. He's been trying to get you to look up, to fix your eyes on things above. But what are we busy doing? We're busy consumed with earthly matters and earthly things. How am I going to pay the bills? What am I going to wear tomorrow? What restaurant are we going to eat at? How are we going to, who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? How's my life going to look in 10 years, right? All good and important things, but not heavenly in nature. And so like Nicodemus, we spend so much of our time consumed by earthly things when Jesus wants to reveal to us the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. And he's trying to get us to look up and to notice this life from above, this life of the spirit. Verse 13, he continues, no one has ascended into heaven except the one or he who descended from heaven, the son of man. The son of man being Jesus' favorite reference for himself. He says, in other words, no man has gone into heaven to do what I can do. Some have tried to climb that ladder. Didn't work out too well for them. They came up short. I was actually in heaven and I was with the father and I've come down, and now I'm going to tell you what I've come to do. I'm going to give you the answer to the question of how you can be born again, of how these things can be. And because Jesus loves Nicodemus, and because he loves us, and he knows that Nicodemus is a student of the scripture, he uses a story and an analogy, a reference point, if you will, that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. He takes it all the way back to the Exodus. 
and he brings up Moses, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, time out. Jesus uses this story that Nicodemus would have been well acquainted with. Moses lifting up the serpent, what are you talking about, Jesus? For most of us, we don't understand what's going on here because we don't know our Bibles. So let me help you tonight. He recalls a reference from the book of Numbers, chapter 21 through verses four through eight, and I just wanna read quickly. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke out against God. And they spoke out against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why did you bring us out here to die? Don't you know there's, there's no adequate food or luxury or comfort or convenience for us out here, Moses? What were you thinking? Life was better back when we were with Pharaoh. And isn't that sometimes what we do? We long for the good old days or the times where we thought life was better where we were. How many of you know that's a deception not worth following? And Jesus, recalling this story, is trying to get Nicodemus's and our attention. But here's what it goes on to say in Numbers 21, verse six. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and we've spoken out against you. Therefore, pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. Pray that he would remove the pain and the suffering from our life. And so Moses prayed for the people. Verse eight, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, not just some, but everyone who is bitten, when he or she sees it, they shall live. Why is Jesus, at the moment of trying to help us understand what it means to be born again, why would he use this story? It seems interesting, doesn't it? Fiery snakes and serpents. Why would he do this? What's he trying to help us to see? He's trying to help us, and he's trying to help Nicodemus to see and to realize that we've all sinned against God and each other. Every single one of us has been bitten and infected with the venom of sin. And without God, without the Lord's help, without his intervention from above, we're all as good as dead. Because, my friends, the wages of sin is always death. In other words, the price and cost of your sin will always bring about death in your life. But, just like God provided a way in his mercy and in his grace for the people who sinned against him to live then, he's provided an even greater way. The only way for us to live and to do so forever. Jesus says, and he goes on to say here in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever, that whoever, that whoever believes in him may have eternal everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus. You see, my friends, my, 
I would say this to us. Jesus is the only way to eternal life because only Jesus provides us eternal life. Jesus says the son of God and the son of man was the only one that could, that could atone for our sins, that could, could make an adequate sacrifice for our sins. And he did so by being lifted up on that cross for you and for me. He did it because he loves us. He did it for love. And in case we weren't convinced, the very next verse confirms it. Verse 16, you guys all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the verse that everybody likes to forget, but is equally as important, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. That's never been the heartbeat of God for his creation, to condemn the world, but no, in order that the world might be saved through him, through Jesus. Beloved, it's always been the heartbeat of God that you and I would be saved. And maybe you're here tonight and you're like, saved? Like, saved from what? Saved from being left to, con to be condemned to die in your sin. Saved from, from a life apart from God. A life separate from his presence. And I'm not just talking about in the age to come, but I'm talking about here and now. Saved from being condemned to darkness, to being separate from the life of, that he created you to have. And John confirms this in the very next verse, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, as it turns out, there's only one offense that will leave you condemned to die in your sin, and it's this, unbelief. Unbelief. It's the only one. Because unbelief is essentially making a purposeful decision not to believe. It's purposing within your heart, I'll never believe. That will never be me. That will never happen. Is God okay with your doubt? Sure. Wrestle away, friends. Question your faith. Question what you know to be true. But don't get sucked into unbelief. Don't make the mistake of thinking that deconstructing your faith is healthy for your soul when in reality, it's leading you down a path to unbelief to where you end up one day waking up going, I'll never believe that again. I'll never do that again. What you're doing is you're allowing your heart to be reconstructed in the image of unbelief, of a purposeful decision not to believe in the name of the only son of God. And that's why John says, because of that reason, if that's you, you're already condemned. You're already living a life of condemnation. But Jesus came to bring us out of our condemnation, sin, guilt, shame, he came to do so and to give us new life in him. When we say that Jesus saves, this is what we're talking about. Jesus is offering us a way out of the dark, a way out of condemnation, a way out of the wrath to come. Instead, he offers us eternal life. This is the great contrast. And that's what he's saying to some of you here tonight. It's time to come out of the darkness. It's time to step into the light. It's time to come out of the darkness and it's time to step into the light. It's time to come to Jesus. Verse 19, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness so, so much because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be revealed. Or the ESV says exposed. But, verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What kind of works are we talking about? Believing in the name of Jesus. To step out of the darkness is to come out of your hiding, to come out of the routine of putting on a mask and trying to pretend everything's okay. But isn't that what we do sometimes in church? Come on. Someone says, how you doing? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm doing great. And deep down, you know that's not true. You bump into somebody at your favorite coffee shop. Hey, how you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored, brother. How you doing? Deep down, you're about to get a divorce. Come on, let's be real, people. Jesus invites us out of the darkness. He's inviting us to step into the light by believing in him, by calling on his name, the only name by which we can and must be saved. To answer the question, how can these things be, how am I born again? Jesus makes it real simple. To be born again is to believe. To believe in the only name, the name that's above all names, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus himself. It's to receive this free gift that he wants every single one of us to take possession of, this free gift of salvation. It's free. But make no mistake, it cost Jesus his entire life. It cost him his life. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't do enough good works to merit your way into it, but you can receive it. And I want to pray for those of you here tonight that have never done that to do so right now. Father, we recognize that apart from you, there is no life. Apart from you, we're all lost in darkness, fumbling around. But Jesus, you came as the light and you pierced through the darkness to show us the way, the truth, and the life that you long for us to have in you. And Jesus, for anybody in this room tonight that doesn't know you, that's never believed in your name, that's never essentially said, I believe that you are who you say you are, the Christ, the Son of God. God, I just want to give them the opportunity right now to make that choice with their heart to affirm and confirm and profess and confess that you alone are God. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray a prayer that we pray almost every week together as a church. It's just a next step prayer because it's you taking a step toward him. Here's the truth. He's already taken a step toward you. He's already come after you. He's already given everything for you. He's already extinguished the life of his very son on that cross for you. And so Jesus, Savior, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from the things that have kept me bound. I believe, I believe, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe and confess that you are the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Saving One. I believe that you died on that cross for me and that God the Father raised you to life again on the third day. Jesus, come and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come give me new life and new hope and new freedom in you. Come make all things new. 
Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.